of all, thank you so much for your welcome. Um, I'm really excited to be up here and I'm really kind of nervous at the same time and it's taken me uh, a long time to kind of say yes to the leaders of the church that have been asking me to come up and do this. Uh, some of that's to do with my own Christian background, the way I was brought up, that women don't do this. So I've had to kind of work through some of that and get over that. And some of it's just fear, plain old fear. So I just wanted to say thank you to Amanda and Tor who were brave enough to come before me so that I don't have to be so scared doing what I'm doing. Because none of you walked out when they preached, so I'm figuring you're going to feel right with me. So, um, so today, if you like a bargain, you're in for a treat because you're getting three preachers for the price of one. Because Matt, in his wisdom, decided a first-time preacher should tackle three separate passages of scripture. So that's what I'm going to be doing. I like Matt, so it's okay, isn't it, Matt? Um, so... Although there are three different sets of scriptures, there is a theme that runs throughout all of them, and that is the kingship of Jesus. So that's what I'm going to be drawing out as we go through them. I'm going to do each section separately, and then there's going to be like a challenge bit at the end of each section. And it just fits in brilliantly with what Chris was saying this morning. The idea of the challenge is not condemnation. It is conviction, because that is what the Bible is for. The Bible is a two-edged sword. It's supposed to think, uh, help us to think about our thoughts and our attitudes. So when I do the, the challenge bit... Bear in mind that I've, I've done that myself and I haven't actually been happy with some of the answers that I've given to the questions that I've put in the challenge. But then that's not condemnation, that's conviction. And then me and the Holy Spirit, we've got some work to be doing together. Okay? So I'm going to start. Uh, we're looking at Mark chapter 11, verses 1 to 10. The passages will go up on the scripture as well. In the previous passage, Jesus has healed a blind man. He's told his disciples that he's going to die, and this is all on the way to making the journey to Jerusalem for the Passover. And they would have been going with a crowd of other people as well. The Passover is a once-a-year celebration of God's saving power, where God rescued his people from slavery in Egypt. It's a good idea to kind of keep that in mind, that they were going to celebrate a God who saves when we read through these passages. Now, the first passage of scripture we're going to look at um, is called the Triumphal Entry. And all of you are going... Hello, it's Justin, February, and she wants to talk about the Easter story. May I point out that Asda started selling mini-eggs at the beginning of January. Did anybody else see that? My first shop of the new year with Nathan in tow. I hate doing shopping with Nathan in tow. He goes, oh, let my mate, there's mini-eggs. I was like, no way, it's January. So now I've got to resist the temptation to eat all his selection boxes. I've also got to resist the temptation to not buy a bag of mini-eggs every time I go into Asda on a Friday. We don't like things starting early. Well, maybe you do, but I don't. I like things to be in the proper space and the proper time, and it's January. There was no time for mini eggs. So when I kind of went, oh, great, I've got a passage of the triumph entry, and it's February, I was like, no. But what I don't want you to do is switch off. Sometimes when things are familiar, sometimes we can have a little bit of contempt, can't we, for things that are familiar, kind of be a bit dismissive. Now, I know loads of you will know this passage, maybe not just from church, but from school as well. I'm a teacher and I've done countless amounts of making children cut out palm branches out of green paper, chuck their jumpers on the floor while the largest kid in the class is the donkey and the smallest <laughs> kid is sitting on his back. I've done that, I've done that. So we're all familiar with the story, yeah? I, the, the kid did want to be a donkey. They used to fight over who was going to get to be a donkey. Not who was going to get to be Jesus, just who was going to get to be a donkey. So what I don't want you to do, I don't want you to switch off. I don't want you to go into autopilot mode. I don't want you to go, well, I've heard so many preachers about this. It gets preached on every year, yeah? Because, again, this is not me. The Bible is amazing. And the Holy Spirit will teach you something, not through what I say, but what God wants to say to you through the passage. Is that okay? So I'm going to read it. I'm going to try and read it from there. My eyesight is good enough. If not, I'm going to read this bit. So it says, As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, 
Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing, untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw his, their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Now, because I've got three preachers to do in one go, I'm not going to go through each verse because I'm sure all of you want to eat some dinner at some point, don't you? And I promise Nathan he can go swimming, so I've got to get out of here. Um, so I'm just going to look at key aspects of the passage. I'm not going to go through it verse by verse. But the main emphasis is kind of going to be about what is Jesus declaring to the crowds by what he's doing and what would the crowds have understood by what Jesus was doing. So he gives very, very specific instructions to his disciples as to what they should get and where they should find it. And I kind of like to think, he was as happy as that, I reckon, to have Jesus riding on his back, don't you? I think so. So we had to go and get one of these. He had to go and get a donkey, the colt, the foal of a donkey, if you want to be specific. Um, the idea, he asked them to get one that wasn't, hadn't been ridden before. And that actually, when you look at Numbers uh, 9, verse 12, unused animals were the ones that were suitable for religious purposes. So the fact that he hadn't been ridden on was actually important in terms of what Jesus was declaring. Now, when we kind of think of Jesus riding on a donkey, sometimes we kind of think of this as a humility thing to ride in on a donkey. But actually, in the Middle East back then, donkeys were considered to be quite noble creatures. And as we find out at Christmas, not really everybody had a donkey because actually it was quite expensive to own a donkey. So it's less about humility than it is about Jesus proclaiming what type of king he's going to be that he's on the donkey. He's going to be a king of peace, not a king of war. Uh, in those days, the kings, when they were returning from war, would have ridden on a horse with all their army coming behind them and all the plunder and the spoils of war. And Jesus comes on a donkey with his 12 disciples who are quite simply clueless as to what is going on, even though he keeps telling them what is going to happen. And they are definitely no army. Yeah. So when Jesus comes like this on the donkey, he's coming to fulfill the prophecy of Zechariah. I'm going to read a little section from that. So Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. I'm going to breathe now as well. <laughs> I talk fast anyway, by the way. That's not a nerve thing. I literally talk at this speed. I work with children with additional needs. I don't know how they learn anything from them. But they do. They all do. Uh, okay, so back to the verse. The verse, uh, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, the rest of the passage, which is well worth going away and just reading for yourself, to Zechariah chapter 9, goes on to describe what this king is going to do. It says he's going to break the battle bow, he's going to proclaim peace, he's going to extend his rule, he's going to fulfill his covenant of blood, he's going to free prisoners, and he's going to restore what is lost. I probably could have just done a whole preach just on that bit there, couldn't I, really? <laughs> but never mind, you live and learn. Um, all of that fits perfectly into what Jesus did as the king. So sometimes we kind of just read that first bit about, oh yeah, he fulfilled the prophecy about him coming in on a donkey. But actually there's so much more to that prophecy in terms of what type of king that Jesus was going to be. Now when the crowds were coming up with him for Passover, they responded to what they saw Jesus do. Um, and they would have known their scriptures, so they would have known that verse in Zechariah. So what they do next might appear maybe strange to us in terms of the branches and the cloaks, but it actually makes perfect sense because they understood that Jesus was proclaiming himself to be the king 
that they were waiting for. And cloaks and branches getting lobbed on the floor was a customary thing to do when royalty came. We wave little flags, don't we? Well, I don't wave flags, but other people wave little flags for the Queen. They would have chucked branches and they would have done their cloaks as well. So we're just going to have a little look now about the kind of things that they said when Jesus was coming through. So there was that shout of Hosanna, which is a cry of praise, meaning he saves. So again, there's that recognition that the saviour king is coming. They could see that in Jesus in terms of what he was doing by being on the donkey and fulfilling that prophecy. They shouted about, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that comes from Psalm 118, which is a psalm that's all about going up to the temple to give praise, which is exactly what they were doing at Passover. They were going up to the temple to give praise to the God who saves. So when they're shouting all this, they're acknowledging that they can see that Jesus is the long-awaited for king from God. Now, how much they actually really understood, we don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us that. But they are seeming to demonstrate that from their knowledge of scripture, they can see that Jesus is this king. They also shout, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. And that's an understanding of the promise that the king would come from the tribe of Judah through David's line. So in Genesis 49, verse 10 to 11, we see what type of king this will be, but also that this is the king that's going to have ultimate authority. So it says, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from his feet, until it comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, and his robes in the blood of grapes. Now here again we can see the reference to the colt, so just in case, you know, Jesus is hammering at home, I'm on the donkey, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. But also again, this verse tells us something about the type of king that this was going to be. It was going to be the rightful king, the king from the right lineage. It was going to be a king that the obedience of all nations was going to be his. But we also see just a tiny kind of glimpse at the end when it's talking about washing his garments in wine and his robe in the blood of gapes. We're talking about what type of king Jesus would be in terms of that he was going to be a saviour king through what he did on the cross. So if you kind of think forward to when Jesus is celebrating Passover with his disciples, he gives a new meaning to what the wine is going to be, that the wine is going to be his blood that's going to be shed for us. So there's just a tiny glimpse in there about the type of king that Jesus is going to be. Now, we have to give the crowd credit. They do know their scriptures, maybe more so than some of us know our scriptures. But the king that they were waiting for and the king that they were wanting and expecting for them didn't turn out to be the king that they got. Yeah? Because although they had those scriptures, they didn't quite have that understanding of how that king was going to be a saviour king, how he was going to make the nations obey him. They didn't get that. They were wanting a king that was going to free them from Roman rule, from the physical rule of the Romans, but they didn't get that in the slightest. But we know that they had a king who was able to do far more than that, that was actually able to free them from Satan's rule and from sin. So Jesus doesn't just deal with the physical, Jesus deals with the spiritual as well. Now when, in the passages that are to come, we see what happens to Jesus when he was arrested, when he was on trial, and when he was crucified, they definitely wouldn't have seen him to be a victorious king, a saviour king. There's no way when they looked at him on the cross, unable to save himself, they would have thought, oh great, our saviour king is here, he can save us, yeah? But we know different, yeah? So we can understand a little bit more than they understood at the time. Now, when it comes to the challenge bit, everybody, here we go. It's not like questions, like, did a day, you've got to get them right. Uh, <laughs> but the idea is, when you explain the scripture, that's great, but scripture's got to resonate with us, it's got to do something to us that that's the job of scripture okay 
So we're going to have a little challenge, reflection. And I'm going to use Tom Wright to do that, so like you can get cross with Tom Wright if you don't like what he says. Um, so for those of you that don't know, Tom Wright is a, is a pretty cool dude. Uh, he writes lots of different books that are very, very helpful. Um, you can use them as Bible studies. So if you're kind of stuck and you're thinking, oh, I find it hard to read or understand the Bible, he goes through the, verses, the books in the Bible and kind of explains them. And he does it for New Testament, I think. I don't think he does it for the Old Testament. So I'm just going to read what he's written about this passage. So he's kind of summing up this passage. I could have just read the whole thing from him, but I didn't. I did do my own stuff, by the way. I did. I did. Okay, so he says, Jesus radically redefined kingship. This is not to be the sort of royalty that either Israel or the rest of the world were used to. But the passage, the one we've been looking at, already raises questions for us in our own following of Jesus and loyalty to him. Are we ready to put our property at his disposal? like the person did with the donkey, to obey his orders even when they puzzle us, like the disciples having to go and get a donkey and just basically steal it off somebody. Are we ready to go out of our way to honour him, finding in our lives the equivalents of cloaks to spread on the road before him and branches to wave to make his coming into a real festival? Or have we so domesticated and trivialised our Christian commitment, our devotion to Jesus himself, that we look on him simply as someone to help us through the various things we want to do anyway. Someone to provide us with comforting religious experiences. In our world where most countries don't have kings and queens, and where those monarchs that remain are mostly constitutional officers with the real power lying elsewhere, have we forgotten what, in biblical terms, a true king might be like? So in terms of our challenge, I want us to think, what type of king are we serving? So those people that were waving their branches and they were shouting, they had an idea of what type of king they were serving and it wasn't the king that Jesus ended up being. Have we maybe diluted our idea of what Jesus as a king is? Have we tried to put him in a box to make him more manageable? And kind of then if we're thinking about that, what type of king are we serving? What should or would we do for a king like Jesus as he's described in the Bible? So for those of you that are counting, are you good at counting? We've done one. How many have we got left? Oh, well done. You're already brighter than my children. Well done. Here we go. So, we're going to look at Mark chapter 11 again, and we're going to look at verses 11, and, and then we are going to skip something out, not because I deliberately skipped it out, but because I was asked to skip it out, because it's going to be dealt with separately. So, for those of you that know your Bible, I'm missing out a bit about the fig tree, but that's going to be dealt with separately. So, we're going to have a little read of this passage, and then we're going to do the same as I did before. We're going to explain it, not verse by verse, because you all want to go home. And then we're going to do a little challenge at the end. So it says, Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything. But since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it into a den of robbers? The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. Now, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the first thing he does is he goes to the temple. The temple was kind of like the spiritual barometer for the Jewish people in terms of where their relationship with God was at. So what was happening in the temple was a reflection of, of what was going on with them as a nation. So Jesus had come the night before, he's looked at it, 
and then he's gone to stay at Bethany. And then the next day, he takes action in terms of what he's seen from when he went the night before. Now, quite often this passage is viewed kind of in the context of Jesus being really angry about the commercialism that's happening in the temple, the fact that people were buying and selling in the temple. And it has got an element of that to it, but there's a lot more to it than Jesus just being cross that people were buying and selling things. So in terms of sacrifices, sacrifices were a necessary part of worship at that particular point in time. And so following on from that, the people who actually sold the animals, that Jesus was overturning their tables and trying to drive them out, actually they were necessary as well because they were selling the animals needed for sacrifice. Now, the animals had to be unblemished in order to be okay to be sacrificed. So those who were travelling up to Jerusalem for the Passover, and we know that lots of crowds came with Jesus to do just that, they wouldn't have wanted to risk their animals becoming unfit for sacrifice on the way. So they would have had to have bought them when they got to Jerusalem. The money changes as well that Jesus gets really mad at and is chucking tables over, they were also necessary, as people had to pay um, the annual temple tax, and they had to pay it in the local currency, and again, lots of people came from different places to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. So they wouldn't have had that local currency. So they would have needed to go and get the money changed. Previously, though, all this buying and selling had been done outside the temple courts near the Mount of Olives. But Caiaphas, the high priest at the time, he'd allowed them to come into the outer court, which was known as the court of the Gentiles, which is where non-Jewish people were allowed to go into the temple to access worship. Now, Jesus' anger here, when we see him driving people out, he's overturning tables, he's preventing people from walking through with merchandise, and I can't help but think, how do you think he did that? How do you think he prevented people from walking through with merchandise? I do, I do quite a lot of trying to catch children before they run out of doors and stuff like that. I don't know whether he was doing that, I don't know. Um, but it's, it's, a, it's an interesting thought. Uh, but when Jesus is doing this, when he's turning over tables, when he's getting mad, it isn't like one of my pupils having a meltdown. By now, you guess I don't work with, like average pupils. I work with children with additional needs. They have quite a lot of meltdowns. It's not like that. Jesus is not having a meltdown and trashing the room because he's angry. He's not operating from his primitive brain that tells him he's either got a freeze, fight or flight and Jesus has chosen to fight everything in sight. It's not that type of anger. Yeah, It's a controlled, righteous anger from the rightful king whose temple it actually was. Okay, He's angry that the temple and thereby the Jewish people we're no longer doing what God had called them to do. He teaches them that it's the house is it's supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. And when he comes in, that is not what is happening. Now, when he talks to them about the house of prayer for all nations, that comes from Isaiah chapter 56. And that's entitled Salvation for Others. So I'm just going to read you a little bit of a section of that to kind of understand why this was supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. It says... And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to serve him, to love the name of the Lord and to worship him, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. So when we think about the temple, I don't like diagrams, but some people do. So I thought, I do a bit of something for everybody. There was a funny donkey picture, and now you've got a diagram, if you like diagrams. Okay, so this is the temple, and you can see the outside bit is the court of the Gentiles, okay? So that's the bit where they were doing the buying and selling. That's the bit where it's supposed to be access for people who love God, who aren't Jews, to be able to come in. And God has said that salvation is for others. He has told his Jewish nation that he will accept people who aren't Jews, foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord, who love him and serve him. He said they've got a place. They can come and they can worship. But what the Jewish people have done by turning that into a marketplace, 
They limited access to the Gentiles who did love God to be able to come in and worship. And in some respects, because of how they understood access to God through sacrifice, they were also limiting those people's access to God. Yeah? And so that is what Jesus is so cross about, not the buying and the selling, but where it was taking place and who it was blocking to be able to come in. Jesus also tells them that they've turned into a den of robbers. And again, I suppose you can kind of interpret that as maybe they were charging too much money for things and they were robbing people that way. But also there is the idea that they are robbing people of their access to God. Yeah? The Gentiles who should have been allowed in weren't being able to get in as a result of that. Um, now, when he talks about the den of robbers, it's the verses in Jeremiah 7, verse 11. He's kind of echoing those. And that is entitled, False Religion is Worthless. And it's a really, really interesting passage to read, actually. Um, and it's all about when God has told uh, Jeremiah to tell the people his message, to say that he's been watching them. He's been watching the Jewish people, watching what they do. And he was reminding them through Jeremiah that it's no good just to trust in the temple of the Lord being what saves them or makes it okay for them to commit the sins that they were doing because they had the temple. That was their attitude. We've got the temple. We're okay. We can offer the sacrifices. We can do whatever we want. Yeah? And God tells them, no, I've been watching and you need to change your ways, and that's not acceptable, and it's not the temple that will save you. Now, exactly what Jesus did the night before, he went and watched first, didn't he, to see what was happening in the temple. And he's declaring the same thing that Jeremiah declared, that God is not happy with what he sees. He's not happy with what the Jewish nation is doing, and he's reminding them again that the temple is not going to be the thing that saves them. Now, when Jesus cleared the temple for the day, he would have disrupted the sacrifices, let's face it, wouldn't it? Because would you have wanted to go in there with somebody chucking tables over and going like this so you can't bring no merchandise in? You wouldn't have wanted to go in, would you? So Jesus actually would have disrupted the sacrifices for that day. And in some way, that's pointing towards Jesus saying, the futility of the sacrifices is coming. There's no, no longer going to be any need for these sacrifices to be offered because we know that Jesus is going to be the ultimate sacrifice. There is going to be no bockage or no barriers. There's not going to be a separate court of the Gentiles and then the Holy of Holies. That that is going to be, we're going to be open because of Jesus' sacrifice. And we read about that in Hebrews chapter 7, verses 26 to 27. I do love my Bible, by the way. That's why I just keep throwing other stuff and bits in. This was fun for me to do. I haven't done this for a long time. I was like, yay. Um, so it says, such a high priest meets our need. One who is holy and blameless, pure and set apart from sinners. He is exalted above the heavens. Unlike other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once and for all when he offered himself. So Jesus is showing there isn't going to be any need for these daily sacrifices to happen. He's going to be the ultimate sacrifice. Now, in terms of the challenge from that, when Jesus went in, the first thing he did was go in and look at the temple, like I said, because it's like the spiritual barometer, what's going on with them. And Jesus can come in right now, and he can see us anyway, um, about what we're doing. We are called to be like the Jewish nation was called to be. We're called to be a light, a light where we are. Yeah? They were supposed to be a blessing to other nations, and they were putting barriers in place so they couldn't be. And so in terms of the challenge, I kind of want us to think about if God came, and he does come and he is here, does that make sense? <laughs> um, and he came and he, and he saw what we were doing individually and collectively. Would he see that we're being light where we are? Okay. And you can see this is probably one of the ones that I didn't like the answer that I gave, yeah? When I thought about what I'm like at work or what I'm like at home when you don't see me <laughs> with my son. <laughs> um, we're called to be that light. We're called to hold it out for people to see so that they will want to come in and be part of that kingdom. 
Are we guilty of putting barriers up the same as the Jewish people did? Maybe not those physical barriers of tables and, and money things, but are we guilty of putting barriers up by maybe we think that person wouldn't be interested, so I won't talk to them about God. Well, that's just going to start an argument in work, so I won't wade in and say what I think about that. But if we don't say, then they won't hear, will they? And if we put barriers up, then they can't come through. So just a little thing to think about. How would we like being the light? If God was to come in and look at our spiritual barometer, if he came here, what would he see? So again, those of you that are good at counting, how many have we got left? One. One. Yay. You all happy about that? Good stuff. Uh, so again, the passage that we're going to look at, we're missing another bit out, and that's the explanation of the fig tree. So I'm not just picking and choosing. Now, when we come to this one, I'm going to split it into two parts to talk to you about it. So first of all, I'm just going to read verses 27 to 28. Chat about them for a bit, and then we're going to look at the rest of it. So it says, They arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you authority to do this? Now, when they're asking those two questions, by what authority are you doing this, or who gave you the authority to do this, they're referring here not just to his temple cleaning frenzy, but also the stories that they would have heard about his healings, his miracles, how he taught people, and his prophetic entry into Jerusalem. So they're not just asking about it one instance, they're asking about the whole thing. How do you get the authorities to do this? Now, no preach is complete without a bit of Greek. And then I realised I don't know how to speak Greek. So I've got one Greek word, and this is the part you can heckle me if you know how to speak Greek and you can say it better than me. So it says here that the word that they use for authority in Greek is excusia. Excusia, which sounds a bit like excuse, doesn't it? Um, and literally translates as the legal right to be able to do something. So they're asking him, what, where is your ultimate authority that you are getting to be able to do the things that you are doing? Now, Jesus' reply is so fantastic. Um, we looked at some of the way that Jesus uh, replied to people when Matt preached a couple of weeks ago about how he kind of gets people twisted in knots about stuff, doesn't he? Jesus is absolutely awesome. I said, you would have loved to have had him on your debate team in school. He's really calm. He's really authoritative. And he gets them twisted in knots. So they can't actually answer his question without creating problems for themselves. The Message Bible sums out when he says they were on the spot. There's nothing they could do. So I'm going to read that little bit. And hopefully, as I'm reading it, it's a little bit self-explanatory as to why they couldn't answer. I got a bit lazy here towards the end of the preach. I thought, do, do your own work. Yeah, yeah. Read it and then have a little think yourselves. Uh, no, but it is, it is quite obvious why they couldn't do what it did. So I'm going to read 29 through to 33. So again, they're asking him, by what authority does he do this? Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. I love that. He doesn't answer them. He's going to give them a question instead. Answer me, and I will tell you by whose authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? Tell me. They discussed it among themselves and said, well, if we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, hmm, they feared the people, for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. <laughs> uh, Jesus said, I love this, well, neither will I tell you then by what authority I am doing these things. Okay? So you can see they're stuck. Yeah? If they say that the baptism was from heaven, they will then be asked, well, why then didn't you go to be baptised by John? Because he said he was preparing the way for one common who was greater than him and he was fulfilling the scriptures. So they're becoming unstuck because they're supposed to be the chief priests, the teacher of the law and the elder. So why didn't they follow John? And if they say it's of human origin, then they know they're going to get into trouble from the crowd 
that absolutely did love John and thought he was from God and did go and get themselves baptised, yeah? So they know that they're in trouble whichever way around they answer that question, which is why they don't say anything at all. So then they don't get an answer either. Now, when we talk about, they talk about John the Baptist, Jesus is answering, asking that question very deliberately, isn't he? He's not just kind of, I'll pluck an example out of thin air and I'll go for John the Baptist because he was my friend. He's done it for a particular reason. So when he talks about that, about John the Baptist, it takes us back to how John was preparing the way for the one who was to come to baptise with the Holy Spirit, the one with the ultimate authority, the one who he said he was not fit to untie his sandals. It also reminds us that we know that Jesus was baptised by John. John wasn't very happy about that at the beginning. He didn't want to do it. He said, I can't do that, I can't do that. And Jesus said, no, you have to do that. This is the right thing to do. And then we know that when Jesus got baptised, there was a voice from heaven that said, this is my son, whom I love, with him I am well pleased. So when Jesus is talking about John the Baptist, he's trying to show to people, this is exactly where I get my authority from. Do you not remember when I got baptised? Do you not remember when it said, this is my son? So Jesus has the ultimate authority. We know he's got that authority from God, so that's why he can ride in as king. It's why he can accept the people's shouts of praise. It's why he can go to pronounce judgment on the temple and the Jewish people, because he is God's son. He is God. He is the rightful king, the one that we've been prophesied about all over those years that we've been learning about. He is the authority, and he is the legal right to be able to do the things that he does. Now, the Bible tells us, and this is cool, that those who know Jesus as their king, as their saviour, their ultimate authority, that we've also got authority because of his spirit that lives in us. We also do have authority. In Romans chapter 8, verse 11, it says, the same spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you. So that same legal right to do the things that Jesus did, we, we have got that because we have the Holy Spirit living inside us. So when we come to think about authority, again, this is the challenge. Where in your life do you think that maybe you need the authority of the king to be exercised in your life? Yeah? And we're thinking about this is the king that breaks the battle bow. This is the king that's going to restore what is lost. Yeah? This is not the same king that's going to free from physical stuff, although he might do it at some point as well. This is a bigger king than the Jewish people could ever imagine. And maybe then in what situations or with what people can you exercise the authority of Christ the king that you've been given through his Holy Spirit living in you? Is there anybody on your heart that you think, actually, I need to speak into that situation? I can be the authority in that situation, not in and of yourself, but because you have the Holy Spirit living inside you, which is, gives you the ultimate authority. Now, I'm getting near the end, everybody. We all all right? Yeah, good stuff. I'll sit down in a minute. <laughs> okay. Uh, now, I'm sure you've all had enough of my voice. I'm very pleased that my voice has lasted as long as its voice has lasted. I'm going to lie down in a bit. Um, but... In kind of summary of what we've been thinking, because I said I pull it all together at the end, we've been thinking about the revolutionary, not quite what people expected at all in any way, and I love that about Jesus, yeah? He's not quite what we're expecting, is he? And even, I've been a Christian a long time, and still Jesus keeps surprising me, and still he's not quite what I expected, and I love that. We know he's the rightful king of Israel, and he's also the rightful king of our lives. I kind of want to leave you listening to the words of someone who's far more eloquent than me. Would you believe it? More eloquent than me? Yes. And he's also got a great accent. I can't do it. I'm hoping in a bit we're going to put the video on. Not just yet. Because um, if I have to read it in his accent, it's going to go horribly wrong. <laughs> so I'm hoping the video works. And there's nobody else here with that type of accent either. So it's not going to be good. So I want you to listen to how this guy, some of you probably got an idea of what I'm going to put on. Listen to how he describes the king. Yeah? Is that your king? 
Is it the king you recognise from the scriptures that we've been looking at today? Yeah? If so, how are you going to respond to a king that is like that, who's described in the scriptures, that we've seen the things that he does, who has the authority that he has? How can you be part of showing and living his kingdom for people so they'll want to come in and see Jesus as that king, that they'll want to be part of that kingdom? So we're going to watch this is my, that's my king, yeah? And you understand now why you, you don't want me to be reading this, because it, it don't work. My king is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I, I wonder, do you know him? My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleans the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he purifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's a key to knowledge. He's a wellspring of wisdom. He's a doorway of deliverance. He's a pathway of peace. He's a roadway of righteousness. He's a highway of holiness. He's a gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. And his yoke is easy. And his burden is light. They found out they couldn't stop him. 